The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. Thank you very much for coming tonight. How's the sound? Up a little bit? No, it's okay? Okay. So in my um, talks here in the past, I've spoken about how um, we might live a life of refuge, about finding refuge in the truth, and about embodying equanimity, embracing each moment as it comes and living with an open heart. And tonight I'd like to expand on these themes and um, talk about how we might walk this beautiful earth with grace. And I want to share with you some quite um, uh, personal things on these themes of uh, refuge and equanimity. So let me begin with a story that's been very helpful to me in my own life and in my hospice work. And in brief, um, a devoted lay disciple of the Buddha named Nakulapita, he was old, gravely ill, and suffering greatly, and he went to the Buddha to request his teachings. And the Buddha's instructions to him were, The body may be afflicted, but the mind need not be afflicted. This is how you should train. So what the Buddha is saying here is that it's actually possible for the body to be gravely ill or or even dying, and for the mind and the heart to be free and at ease. So he's pointing towards the possibility of freedom, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And now I'd like to tell you about um, my sister Sue as an example of the body being afflicted and the mind not being afflicted. I'm the eldest of four and the four of us have always been really, really close. Um, my three siblings live right next to each other um, on uh, areas of our family farm in Maine. And I'm the only one who didn't settle down there. Instead, I, I came out here and studied Zen. Sue was the youngest in our family. I was eight when she was born, and as you can imagine, you know, an eight-year-old girl with a newborn baby, I just completely doted on her. I adored her. She was the apple of my eye. And she turned out to be the smartest of us all, and she got a PhD and uh, became a conservation botanist, spending her professional life uh, hiking through the Maine forest and much of the East Coast, identifying and mapping vegetation and rare plants. And for much of her career, she was responsible for protecting and conserving uh, the rare plants of Maine. She married an ecologist 
who uh, was responsible for the water quality of all the lakes in Maine. So a beautiful family with two kids, now in their early 20s. She was an avid organic gardener, and she started the farmer's market in her town. Uh, Her Christian spirituality was very important to her, and um, she had a great sense of humor. She loved music. She sang. It's really hard to imagine anyone more dynamic and more committed to helping others and to caring for the earth. And then five years ago, at the age of 55, she was diagnosed with ALS. So for those of you who are not familiar with this, it's uh, sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's a lethal uh, neuromuscular disease in which the motor neurons progressively die, robbing the body of its ability to walk, to move, to swallow, to talk, and ultimately to breathe. Today there's no cure and no treatment for ALS, and so the diagnosis is a death sentence. So um, for the last five years, I'd say that my sister's illness has been right at the center of my life and my practice. The prognosis for an ALS patient is two to five years from the time of diagnosis. So you can maybe imagine um, how traumatic this has been for our whole family. So Sue's response was to fight her disease, and she wanted to live as long and as productive a life as she possibly could. She especially worked to help scientists to find a cure for ALS, even though she knew it wasn't going to happen in her lifetime. And she managed to live for five years, thanks to her own iron determination and to the amazing loving care that she received from her husband and her family and friends. And finally, when she couldn't go on any longer, she let go of her battle, and she died peacefully three weeks ago. So her example in the face of adversity has been inspiring but also humbling to those of us who've who've been close to her. About a year after her diagnosis, I told Sue the story of the Buddha's lay disciple, Nakulapita, when he was old and gravely ill and suffering greatly and went to the Buddha, as I told you before. And the Buddha said to him, the body may be afflicted, but the mind need not be afflicted. That is how you should train yourself. She was way ahead of me. She'd actually already figured this out herself. And from the very beginning of her illness, she managed to remain positive in the face of losing her ability to move. She treasured every single day of her life. And she never complained. Can you imagine never complaining when week after week 
you keep losing your ability to move. It's, it's just, it's hard for us to conceive of it. In the end, she could only blink her eyes, raise her eyebrows. And she practiced gratitude. So if she was in her living room in her wheelchair and she could look out the window and see a bird in the bird feeder, her day was made. And what a gift she gave us all by her example of radiating gratitude and confidence and love in the face of such incredible adversity. She made visible for me and for many of us the spark of enlightenment which is actually within each one of us. So how did she do it? Well, she she turned away from bitterness and she exuded gratitude. And she turned away from self-centeredness and just focused on an incredible generosity for everybody else. Following uh, the teachings of Jesus to love one's enemies, she never harbored a grudge and she opened her arms and her heart to absolutely everyone. And her example taught me that we too can open our hearts completely with love that has no limits and is extended to beings everywhere without exception. As uh, many of you know, in, in our tradition, we have the practices of the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. And these are concentration practices in which we silently repeat simple phrases which little by little can transform us and allow us to dwell more and more in these beautiful mind states. So um, with your permission, I'd like to share with you the, the prayer that I've been saying for my sister every day for the last five years. So my practice is to begin every sit, sending her these few words, And sometimes I'd say them at other times as well, like if if I was walking. I went to Maine three or four times a year uh, to be with her, but most of the time I was in France or uh, in California. And when Sue was still able to talk, she told me that she could actually feel it when those prayers were coming from overseas or from across the continent. She, She said she was really getting them. So here's what I would wish for her. But as you hear these words, remember that this is something that we can also wish for ourselves as well and for all beings everywhere. So may you be free from suffering, free from struggle. May you bathe in the love that's holding you. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. Very simple. It's 
So first of all, free from suffering. And the next wish, free from struggle. So if we find ourselves suffering, we can wish for ourselves, may I be free from suffering, free from struggle. And not struggling against the way things are is really the key. So whatever this present moment is offering us, this is what we've got to work with. Uh, And this is what I was talking about uh, last March as well, finding refuge in the truth. If we can open our minds and our hearts to the way things are and give up struggling against reality, this can be a real door opener to freedom. And since my sister had the good fortune to be so surrounded by love, my next wish for her was to bathe in the love that's holding you. So if we have the good fortune to have a close network of loving family or friends, then it can be very skillful to remember this and to really experience fully it, even, even to revel in it, bringing in the good. But some of us are lonely, some of us are isolated, and we don't have the privilege of a close-knit network. And in this case, we don't feel that we're being held in love. So here, the skillful phrase would instead be, may you or may I be filled with loving kindness. You may have heard the off-cited quote from the Buddha to his followers in which he says, whatever one frequently thinks about and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. So by sending out prayers like this, little by little, they do become the inclination of the mind. So now in this sequence of phrases, we're free of struggling against the way things are. We filled our hearts with loving kindness. And with that kind of acceptance and love, now we're in a good position for the next wish, which is, may I or may you be happy. Just imagine your heart full of love. and It's possible. It's likely that we're happy when we're brimming over with loving kindness. And again, we pause and we let that happiness really sink in. And now with the heart and mind free of struggle, filled with love and and tasting happiness, we're ready for the final phrase of the prayer, which is, may I, may you, may we be peaceful. And we savor the feeling of peace. And this becomes kind of a a virtuous circle. And the peaceful mind is a quiet mind. And the quiet mind is able to see more clearly and also in a better position to let go. And we're more able to stay with whatever's arising in the present moment rather than turn away from it. 
So my sister's funeral, which we preferred to call uh, a celebration of her life, was two weeks ago. But just before, uh, the day before, we had uh, the family also celebrated a wedding, which had been planned since last December. So it was a very intense weekend with joy on Saturday and and grieving on Sunday. So the wedding was um, my niece Molly, um, daughter of my brother John, and both um, John and Molly have been practicing in um, Native American spirituality in Maine for many years with a master of Native wisdom named uh, Ray Wrightsey, and his uh, Native name is Old Turtle. So Molly and her husband Lau, their wedding began with a small group of us uh, in a traditional Native ceremony at the crack of dawn in the family field overlooking these beautiful hills to the east. And as the sun rose, we stood in a circle And Old Turtle led us in a rainbow ceremony. So there was a basket on the ground in front of him, filled with beautiful ribbons of every color of the rainbow. And he took all the ribbons in his hand, and with them he invoked blessings of the sun, and the moon, and the earth, and the water. And then he gave each one of us a special color to hold, while he spoke to the wedding couple, telling them uh, how they should care for each other. And he said that they should care for each other in the same way that they would hold on to a rainbow. Well, um, it's kind of impossible to hold on to a rainbow, right? Uh, And the more we try to catch it, the more elusive it becomes. So at the end of the ceremony, we all lifted our ribbons to invoke blessings to the wedding couple, and then we dropped our pieces of the rainbow back into the basket on the ground. So the point that Old Turtle wanted to emphasize is that there's absolutely nothing, nothing that we can hold on to. And it's when we completely let go of wanting to hang on to anything at all that we walk this beautiful earth with grace. So letting go is the key. And this is what we're all called upon to do. And it's exactly what the Buddha said as well. That the end of suffering is when we stop clinging. And that letting go is what opens the door to freedom. We know, but we don't always remember that every one of us will eventually be separated from everyone and everything we love. It's just the nature of our human life. So we're called upon to let go of any regrets or bitterness about the past. We're called upon to let go of anxiety and to act knowing that worry serves no purpose whatsoever. And um, for those of us who suffer from anxiety, the other day I saw one of these great kind of wisdom of the day memes 
and it said in big capital letters, anxiety is not preparation. (laughs) So why do we go there? So we're called upon to live in this moment with whatever this moment offers us. It could be great happiness. It could be great adversity. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of our human existence. And we have to let go of wanting things to be different than what each present moment is actually offering us. Unfortunately, there are great beings, great teachers, who show us how to do this. People like Gil, like Old Turtle, like my sister. They show us that it's possible to let go of wanting things to be different than they are and to walk gracefully on this earth, radiating kindness with every step. So let me read a poem to you from this wonderful native teacher, Old Turtle. It's called A Song for a Quest. This song is for you. My heart roams the land free. Thunder is my heartbeat. Raindrops are my tears. My footsteps are feathers upon the land. We are all one, you and me. Wherever you look, I shall be. And to me, this echoes the Buddha's teaching of not-self. We are all one, you and me. Wherever you look, I shall be. So now I'd I'd like to go back to that first story about Nakulapita and the the Buddhist instruction for training in the face of illness or death, that the body may be afflicted, but the mind need not be afflicted. And I'll read you the fuller story from the Samyutta Nikaya, the uh, connected discourses of the Buddha. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was living among the Bhagas at Crocodile Haunt in the Besakala Grove at the Deer Park. Then the householder, Nakulapita, went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Lord, I am a feeble old man, aged, Advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, I am afflicted in body and ailing with every moment. May the Blessed One teach me. The Buddha replies, So it is, householder, so it is. The body is afflicted, weak, and encumbered. For who, looking after this body, would claim even a moment of true health except through sheer foolishness. So you should train yourself. Even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. That is how you should train yourself. Then the householder, Nakulapita, delighting in and approving of the Blessed One's words, rose from his seat and went to see the Venerable Sariputta, one of the Buddha's main disciples. And Venerable Sariputta said to him, Your faculties are clear and calm, householder, your complexion pure. 
Have you had the opportunity today of listening to a Dhamma talk in the presence of the Blessed One? And Nakulapita answered, How could it be otherwise, Lord? I have just now been sprinkled by the Blessed One with the deathless ambrosia of a Dharma talk. And he relates his talk again with the Buddha, who concludes, Even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. That is how you should train yourself. And then the Venerable Sariputta asks Nalukapita, But why didn't it occur to you to question the Blessed One further? In what way is one afflicted in the body and afflicted in mind? And in what way is one afflicted in the body but unafflicted in mind? And Nakulapita replies, Oh, I would come from a very long way to hear the explication of these words in Venerable Sariputta's presence. So Sariputta answers, Then in that case, householder, listen and pay close attention. I will speak. Now, how is one afflicted in body and afflicted in mind? There is the case where an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person who has no regard for noble ones, is not well-versed or disciplined in their dhamma, and who has no regard for persons of integrity, is not well-versed or disciplined in their dhamma, assumes form, the body, to be the self, or the self as possessing form, or the form as in the self, or the self as in the form. Here one is seized with the idea that I am form, or form is mine. As one is seized with these ideas, one's form changes and alters, and one falls into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair over its change and alteration. Then he goes on to say, the five aggregates, one assumes feeling to be the self, and then he he repeats the same thing for each of the aggregates how they cause us to fall into sorrow and despair um, when we identify with them. One assumes perceptions to be the self. One assumes mental formations to be the self. One assumes consciousness to be the self, or the self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in the self, or the self as in consciousness, or consciousness as mine. As one is seized with these ideas, one's consciousness changes and alters, and one falls into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair over its change and alteration. This householder is how one is afflicted in body and afflicted in mind. And how is one afflicted in body but unafflicted in mind? There is the case where a well-instructed disciple of the Noble Ones who has regard for noble ones, is well-versed and disciplined in their dhamma, who has regard for persons of integrity, is well-versed and disciplined in their dhamma, does not assume form to be the self, or the self as possessing form, or form as in the self, or the self as in form. Here one is not seized with the idea that I am form or form is mine. As one is not seized with these ideas, one's form changes and alters, but one does not fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, or despair over its change and alteration. One does not assume feeling to be the self. One does not assume perception to be the self. 
One does not assume mental formations to be the self. One does not assume consciousness to be the self. Or the self is possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in the self, or the self is in consciousness. One is not seized with the idea that I am consciousness or consciousness is mine. As one is not seized with these ideas, one consciousness changes and alters, but one does not fall into sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, or despair over its change and alteration. This householder is how one is afflicted in body, but unafflicted in mind. That is what the Venerable Sariputta said. Gratified, the household Nakulapita delighted in Venerable Sariputta's words. So the way we train our minds to let go of our identification with our attachment to our bodies, form, feelings, our perceptions, our mental formations, and our consciousness is through mindfulness meditation. So the big picture of our mindfulness meditation here at IMC involves three types of effort. Knowing the mind, training the mind, and freeing the mind. And for us, it's these practices, I believe, that allow us to walk the earth with grace. So here I'll paraphrase Gill's teachings a bit. The first step of mindfulness is knowing the mind. Just It means to notice and take stock of who we are, what's going on in the body, in the mind, in our emotional life. So in our meditation, our first job is to discover what's really going on with us. The focus is on knowing, and we make no attempt to try to change anything. We just want to see the way things are. And yet, stillness is a great aid in this meditative discovery of knowing the mind. The second step in our practice is training the mind. And sometimes we feel really caught by our unskillful mind states, whether it be anger or anxiety, fear or guilt. But the good news in Buddhist practice is the mind is actually malleable. It can be trained to operate in ways that are more beneficial than these unskillful states that we so easily get caught in. And this is one of the reasons that uh, I like to begin my sittings with just a very few minutes of loving-kindness practice. It's a way we can cultivate a more loving and compassionate mind. And as we cultivate these beautiful mind states, little by little, they start to become more and more often our default instead of the usual states of greed, hate, and delusion. So to quiet the mind, may I be free from suffering, free from struggle. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. And oftentimes, the mind might not be quiet at all. So this loving-kindness practice is not to reject whatever agitated or unskillful mind state we might be in, but rather just to incline the mind towards letting go. And little by little, we do learn to be kinder and more forgiving with ourselves. And once we can do it with ourselves, we can do it with others. 
And when we can open the heart like this, it's a great um, help with the first step of knowing the mind. The more open our hearts and minds, the freer we are of delusion, and the more able we are to accurately observe what's arising in each moment. As we train the mind and body, little by little we begin to be more relaxed with whatever the present moment has to offer us. And the more we can relax, the easier it is for the knowing aspect of the mind to see where we're clinging. So relaxing is also a door to freedom, very much worth cultivating. And the third aspect of our mindfulness practice after knowing the mind and training the mind is freeing the mind, letting go of clinging. So little by little we start to see how even the most subtle forms of clinging limit our ability to be peaceful and limit our freedom. So again, the good news is that it's actually possible for us to free our minds. As Gill says, usually freeing the heart begins in small steps, each bringing a corresponding peace. Freed completely, the heart is completely at peace. Complete freedom is not easily attained. It requires knowledge and training. So keep in mind the small steps. You know, treat, let go just a little bit. But every, let, every little bit of letting go makes space for moments when our bodies and minds and hearts can be at peace. So I'd like to end tonight with a beautiful poem by Billy Collins. It's called Forgetfulness. And to me it evokes a kind of letting go that occurs uh, rather naturally as we get older. And it's also about not clinging to our fixed ideas, to our memories, or to the loss of our memories. The name of the author is the first to go followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you've never read, uh, never even heard of. As if, one by one, the memories you used to harbor decide to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you're struggling to remember, it's not poised on the tip of your tongue or even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall, well on your way to oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle 
in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. So, opening to the mystery of not knowing, opening completely to letting go of the rainbow and everything else, letting go of our narrow idea of self, and opening the heart. Opening the heart to whatever the present moment brings us, we begin little by little, maybe with baby steps at first, to walk this earth with grace. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for your practice. And uh, before we open to the discussion, I'd just like to invite you, if, if you're so inclined, um, to a day-long I'll be offering here on Saturday, November 21st, on the theme of embodying loving-kindness. And so during this retreat, we explore the quality of loving-kindness, bringing it into our mindfulness and opening our hearts to embrace uh, whatever we encounter in the present moment. And we use three complementary practices, our usual insight meditation, and then also qigong, which is embodiment or movement meditation, and then um, opening the heart through loving-kindness meditation. So thank you. And uh, we have a few moments uh, for questions or reflections or whatever you'd like to contribute. We have the mic. Hi. I was so happy to see that you were speaking tonight. And I really like what you talked about because now I'm just beginning to ask myself, am I too old for this? <laughs> you know, am I too old? Is my mind too old to really be able to let go of all these things that I thought it had to be? And I encourage, I really appreciate the encouragement that, you know, it's never too late. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. also very happy to see that you are speaking tonight and happy that you will be doing a day long uh, that includes Qigong. Um, but tonight <coughs> I really enjoyed how you brought parallels between different practices, um, different stories, your personal story. It's very touching and um, it really helped understand things in a different way. So Thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. <coughs> Excuse 
excuse me. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for your share um, about your sister. I actually, two and a half years ago, lost um, my best friend uh, from growing up to ALS. And I've since then kind of struggled with um, how to come to terms with, you know, why it happened and everything. And so it was especially, you know, when I came here, I, I've never been here before um, and didn't really know what to expect. But, I mean, it was just, it was really, I mean, for me, moving and, like, really... Uh, it brought up a lot of stuff that I've been, you know, holding. I, I'm not really even sure. It's still kind of churning in me, but I just really wanted to thank you for that. And uh, it really gives me some perspective about what had happened to my friend. And, um, you know, and I'm just, I think about him every day. And, you know, I'm sorry for the loss of your sister. And um, just basically very happy to be here and lots of gratitude. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for, for coming. You know, there there is no answer to the question why. Um, and there's, you know, you've heard about the teachings of karma, perhaps, but the causes and conditions that result in uh, whatever comes up are so incredibly complex that there's no way that we can actually understand how something like this occurs. And in this particular case of ALS, uh, the scientists don't know what causes it. Um, and it's just, uh, it's one of those, one of the Buddhas called the imponderables. So the question is not so much, why did it happen to my beautiful sister or to your beautiful friend? But um, how do we embrace it? Um, I'm, I'm very much like the lady over there, very appreciative of uh, when you're speaking to, well, it seemed to me, to us older folks. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, there's, uh, uh, my wife and I have been watching Joseph Campbell again, you know, back in the, about 88, everybody was watching him. And, you know, one of the, the, metaphors he uses of the Western, you know, uh, tradition of the knight going out and charging. He's got armor on and he he uh, goes through life uh, trying to uh, reach his goals that he considers noble. And uh, let's see. When you age then the body isn't armored, you know. It starts to, uh, you know, lose its abilities to to keep charging forward. Uh, but you may have to, right? Uh, or you may think you have to, at least maybe in my case. But uh, it's very important to realize that the mind can be apart from all that, Uh as you pointed out, and really well, I thought. Your repetition of it, I just loved. Thank you. Anyway.
So, to close, I'd just like to remind everyone that our talks are freely offered, and there is a donation box outside on the way out the door. Um, so, thank you very much, Meg. It's getting late, and you know we all want to go home. <laughs>